0: Remember the cries for freedom, the cries for justice. I saw what injustices happen in low-income communities. I made it through the crack epidemic here in New York City, which hit low-income, predominantly African American and Hispanic communities. I yeah. lived in these communities with the knowledge that there are injustices that happen, there are unfair things, there are places that need to be revitalized and, and reimagined. How do we do that without creating other forms of oppression? How do we do that without creating more divisiveness?
1: Jessica, Janir, what is going on, my friend? Hey, Shay, how are you? I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to our chat. Uh, Just some background for those who are watching and listening. I had reached out on Facebook and said, and on LinkedIn and was like, I wanna have some conversations with some folks around diversity, equity, inclusion, a kingdom lens in the midst of all the things going on in culture. And your name among a handful of others came up. And so we've had some time to uh, chat a little bit, but I get to just hang out with you and explore your story a bit more and all the goodness of what you've been experiencing. So thank you for joining me, Jessica.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited about our time together today. Absolutely. Okay. So let's
1: start here because you have a really unique background. Take us back and tell us a bit about your family and personal story.
0: Yeah. It's been an interesting journey to say the least. So my life actually began in Germany and during the time my mom was pregnant with me. And I think this is very relevant because, um, I really believe it highlights the grace of God and how he has a purpose for each and every one of us. When she was pregnant with me, she was actually homeless at the time, coming out of a very abusive marriage. Um, She was looking for an abortion and she could not find a doctor in the German town that would perform the abortion. They told her that she would need to travel to Holland. Now she didn't have the means to travel to Holland. So she was forced to give birth to me at that time. She brought me to my grandparents' home, which was on a farm in a very small town called tiefenbach and i lived there with them for the first six years of my life i did not really remember seeing my mom during those years um the 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 greatest memory i have of her was when it was time to leave germany so by this time my mom had remarried She had other children. She had married an African-American soldier that was stationed in Germany. And during this time, this was like the um, early 80s now, where I had no concept of race and culture and anything to do with America. But looking back now, I understood that that small town had a residue of the neo-Nazi culture. So they were very um, disturbed. By the right. fact that we had, a, they had an interracial couple in this small town with yes. mixed children. My my two siblings, um, my sister Vicky, and my brother Tyrone were born in Germany as well. And my sister Vicky was very dark skinned, very dark skinned. She had the you know the typical black girl hair. Yeah. So they really stood out, and they basically And were- his name. Wait, your brother's name was Tyrone. Right. Yes. Mean- <laughs> So they literally stood out. So here, you know, I have this new family that my mom was like, you're coming to America with us. So now I'm in this new family um, where I'm the little, the the oldest sibling. I'm the only white kid. I don't speak the language. And we moved from this German area to now Queens, New York. And it was this, this area was very significant because it was an area called Rosedale, Queens. Now in the eighties, Rosedale Queens was going through what they call the white flight. Now I had no knowledge of this. Now I'm about seven years old, moving into this culture. I'm living with my step grandparents who were black southerners. They were Baptists. They were members of a church. They were very well-respected from what I, what I've known, what I've gathered through the years. Um, however, they were very problematic because they were very angry that their son married a white woman ah. and we had to live with them. So you can only imagine what that was like.
1: <laughs> a little tense, a little tense
0: at times. Oh, just a little tense. A little yes. Bit. Just a little bit. It was so tense that they actually used to hide me in the back room. I was not allowed to go outside. What? Only time I was allowed to go outside was when I went to school. Now you have to imagine a little white German girl Coming into American, not just American culture, but American black culture. Yeah. From now I'm in a school where ninety-nine point nine of the students were African American. They were black. Wow. And because I didn't know the language, I was moved into this single room where now I was getting ESL classes. Yep. English as a second language. Yes. What that did for me was it made me stand out even more because now I'm the only white kid in the school. I'm in this classroom by myself, like I'm a weirdo. And every day after school, I kid you not, there were dozens of kids chasing me to jump me, to beat me up. Um, I used to, I remember I literally have memories of mobs of kids chasing me through the park and me trying to make it home to the house so that I wouldn't get beat up. Wow. How how old were you? About seven years old at the time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is
1: very early elementary school. Very
0: early elementary school. Now, I also want to just put into context, like, with the parental issue. So my stepfather was an alcoholic, very militant man, very stoic, very abusive man. Um, My mother was a German woman who left Germany. She wasn't very educated, so she was dependent on him on a lot of... She was dependent on him for a lot of things. sure, And that began to make sense to me as I got older. I'm like, okay, why would she stay with this man? Like what's going on here? Why would she allow him to be so abusive to me? Why are we even living in this home where it was just, it wasn't even tense or toxic. It was abusive. Like my step-grandparents were physically abusive towards me and one of my, um, I guess, strongest memories of living in the house was, um, not just being hidden in the back room, but also having to go downstairs and get a switch. Mm -hmm. Now uh, people culturally may not know what a switch is, but if you're from a black family, a switch is something that's very normal. Like you, you mess up, you show disrespect. You don't do something that you're told to do. Um, the switch will become your friend very quickly. So my step-grandmother would send me downstairs to get a switch for whatever I had quote unquote done wrong. And I remember she had a set of stairs. It had to be like 12 to 15 stairs because they lived on the second floor of this house. The landlord lived downstairs. And I remember walking up and down those steps at least three or four times, getting a new switch. Cause she would take the switch. She would go like this on her hand to feel the the thickness of it. And she'd go, no, go back down and get another switch. Go
1: get another one.
0: And by the fourth or third, third or fourth time, she would get so angry that she would go down and get one that she felt was appropriate. And then she would beat me with the switch. Were you the only
1: child of all the children there that would get get beat with a switch? Yes.
0: So I was the only child that got hit physically. I was, because I was also the oldest child, it brought in the dynamic of I was responsible for the other kids.
1: Right? So if
0: they right. started fighting, I would get hit. If they didn't like, if something happened between them, um, why aren't you watching them? So they, it also created this strange dysfunctional dynamic as an older sibling. Between yeah. me and my siblings.
1: Did you have a sense? Because I remember, you know, being that age. And I grew up, on the other side, I was, we would be the only black family in white communities or in white churches, etc. And at that age, I had no awareness. It, it The whole idea of different skin color, all of this, those things didn't even really, um, resonate with me. I just, I had friends, all those things with all the dynamics of what was going on with you, especially being in a household where you have siblings that are darker skinned, you kind of came into this, you kind of came into this new family. And then you're experiencing this different treatment from being the oldest child and the one who doesn't know the language and the one with white skin in the family. Did you have a awareness that that was the core difference? Like that this was a race Connected thing. Did you make those connections as a kid, or were you just like, I, I just don't like it here, and I don't, you know, why am I being treated this way? Yeah, Did you make
0: no, those that's kind of- a great question. I think it became very clear to me once I saw that no one looked like me where everywhere I went. So, like in the mm-hmm. neighborhood, um, you know, just going everywhere, and I'm, I'm literally, my mom and I were the, really, were the only white people in so many of these spaces and places for so long. But at that age. It, it, it was confusing and I didn't fully gather what was happening, but I knew something about race was there because I was called a lot of names. Like I, my grandmother, she would literally call me the hunky word, like as she would yeah. hit me. And she right. would tell me like, you take your little white behind, like I'm, I'm speaking very PG, but <laughs> you know, she would say like, get your little white ass in the room and right. you stay in there. And so- yep. I was getting called white names or I was made fun of. So then it was like, okay, wow, this is, this is, this is a problem.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, you had a good relationship with your siblings. It sounds like. I
0: did. So I was always like the nurturer. I always looked out for them because we lived in, we didn't live with my step-grandparents very long. I think we were with them for about a year. When we moved into another part of Queens, we moved into an all Caribbean neighborhood. I mean, predominantly Caribbean neighborhood. This is where we met people who were Haitian, who were Jamaican, Jamaican. Trinidadian. Um, that school, when I went to that school, you had some maybe light-skinned Puerto Ricans or Hispanic people, you yep. know, that went to that school. But that immediate neighborhood, and even our landlords that lived in the house where we lived, they were they were West Indian, they were Caribbean. And that was a whole nother layer That's of culture. That's a whole layer of culture. Yes. 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 So it's very, very fascinating. But the first family that befriended me in that community was a Jamaican family. So now I used to go over to the house and I'm hearing the tunes of Bob Marley. I'm getting exposed to ackee and saltfish and all the different Caribbean oh, yeah. dishes. And like, this is now part of my everyday norm.
1: Yes. Yes. And now as far as faith backgrounds, so when is, where's is your family, uh, church attending, um, there's, I know there's church attendance and there's Christ following. So, so like what was kind of the faith dynamic as a, as a young person?
0: Yeah. So the faith dynamic was very confusing because my first introduction to anything related to Jesus was through my step grandparents who oh. Right. So I would see them getting dressed for church on Sundays. They never took me to their church. I don't have any memory of ever going to their church. Um, I do remember my step-grandmother being dressed very nicely. She would always wear the the church hats, like the black Southern women who would wear those church hats, always looked very together. Um, They would play gospel music in the house. And it created a conflict for me because the word Jesus became a trigger word for me. Right. And I didn't understand what was happening until much later, but I didn't really want anything to do with the word Jesus or this concept yeah. or idea of Jesus. Now, when we moved into the other part of Queens and it was just my stepfather, my mom and my siblings and I, we really didn't go to church. There was no talk about God I know that through the years, my mother did take us to like Catholic mass, maybe Christmas time. Then that was confusing too, because (laughs) it's like, okay, you drink some wine, you get a piece of bread and it just felt very disconnected for me. So the whole idea of God being, being there became very confusing and at some point very angering for me. Yeah. When did that change? It changed in my young adult life. I think when it really started to change was when I was a teenager. I had gone through this period where um, through my teen years, and I also have to say just for for context, once we left Germany, I had no connection with my family in Germany.
1: Oh, wow, okay.
0: So it wasn't like we were keeping in touch and I was connected to my culture there. I was totally disconnected from my German culture. I didn't even remember some of my family members there. Um, I lost the language over a period of time. I found out that my documents were hidden. My stepfather had hidden and basically stolen our documents. So we didn't have a phone for many years. Like we were just totally disconnected. Wow. So now I'm going through this period where I don't know anything about my German culture. I'm now in America. I'm in black culture. Now I'm exposed to Caribbean culture and all these different cultures. And I went through a period where I really didn't know who I was. Sure. And then you add the faith component, right? It's like, okay, God. And then you add the, um, the layer of dysfunction with abuse, domestic violence happening in the home that went on for 16 years, the physical abuse that I experienced from my mom and my stepfather because I didn't know at the time, but my mom was bipolar. So it explained a lot of her erratic behaviors through the years and why she was so neglectful, why she maybe made some of the choices that she did. So there was a lot a lot of odds. There's a lot in there. there. There's a lot in there. And then you add the poverty component. Like my mother didn't work because she didn't have an American education. So she would clean houses for maybe some of the Jews in the area maybe get like off the books jobs. My stepfather, again, was an alcoholic. So when he worked, when Friday came around and that was payday, he would disappear for the weekend. Mm. So my mother, depended on welfare and the system to raise five children, there were five of us. Wow. Wow. So you add that component to all of the other layers because yes. poverty in and of itself is very traumatizing
1: absolutely
0: and then you absolutely. have these other elements yeah so god to me was like okay does god exist i don't really believe god exists because if he does why would he let these things happen right
1: right, right. but then it you said that that changed in your early adulthood was this pre-marriage prior to marriage so i don't know when you got when you got married but Tell yeah. me a little bit about
0: that. I feel like it really happened over a period of time. Um, even like when I say my coming to Jesus moment, right? I remember it happening in dots, like in, in different spots. And I believe that it happened that way because there were so many layers of trauma right. that I experienced over time that I, I I really believe God just kept meeting me in these different moments of my life to yeah. say, I am here and I've yeah. been with you and there is purpose in your pain. And this is all going to make sense one day. And wow. there's was like these different moments. I think one of the most, I guess, eye opening moments was around the age of 17. And I had just attempted suicide for the mm. third time in three years. Wow. So I am a three-time suicide attempt survivor, and it was during a very difficult time. It was um, during the height of my teen years. My mother and stepfather had split up, finally, after 16 years, and the abuse continued from a distance. And during that time, I began to rely heavily on drinking, taking drugs, and just getting involved in things that I thought would kind of... Help me cope with some of this pain. Well, yeah. after my third attempt and waking up, I was like, something is this gotta be something. <laughs> like, right. okay, God, like this like, can't be it. Like, this can't be it. Like, okay, God. I like it really raised my curiosity. And I started to think, well, maybe God is real. And maybe God does not want me to die in this. Maybe there's something better ahead. And I feel like it became a spark of hope for me. My sister, my, my sister, who was three years apart from me, she was the first of the siblings born to my stepfather and my mom, Mm -hmm. she unfortunately passed away a year later. Due to gang violence, because again, yeah. we come from a very, very dysfunctional family. Um, and when she passed away, that was when the light went off in me, and I said, Yeah, I can't continue going down this track. And the fact that she had to lose her life and became a victim of the circumstances, I need to rise up and honor her life and do something with myself. And so that became my inspiration to really, really seek healing, to seek a sense of purpose. I can't say that I was walking with God, but I do feel like, I do feel like he was with me. And it it was in a strange way. I believed in a higher power at that time. And and that's when I- The
1: awareness of him, his involvement in your life.
0: It is. And it was so interesting because during this time was when I called myself a searcher. So- I had Dalai Lama books. I had, you know, the Quran at the house. Like I was looking at all of these different pieces of religious, um, you know, messaging. And I said, well, God, which one is you? Where are you in all of this? I was into, you know, the angels and the psychics. And like, I was, I was dabbling in in a little bit of everything. And I realized now looking back, it's because i was i am a spiritual person and and my spirit craves to worship and know god and to praise god and so in my search i was looking in all of these places but when i finally came to the knowledge of christ some years later i was at that point immediately where you couldn't tell me anything (laughs) you're sold out i'm like i'm sold out i i've seen everything else i've dabbled in everything else i've You know, I've experienced this and I see the difference. I feel the difference. I know the difference.
1: Yeah, that's good. Share with me, because before we kind of shift into even some of the work you're doing and some of the things that God's shown you through that, talk about your family dynamic, your marriage and kids.
0: I was around 23 years old when I got married, 23 years old i met my husband at work and i was a young mom at the time i was a single mom my daughter was already in the picture from a previous relationship this year we celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary Oh,
1: that's awesome by the
0: grace of god and he has always taken my daughter as his own child even though her biological dad was always in the picture and we co-parented yeah. and um he's a great guy as well but my husband has always referred to my daughter as his daughter and and vice versa so it's been beautiful and so we we've raised um all three of our children we had three children in total and my my family is just to me a sign of god's miraculous work because for me my greatest accomplishment is my family it's looking at my family and saying okay we're not perfect we have the residue of a lot of trauma that's been passed down that we're working through however we have love at the center and yes. breaking that cycle of child abuse and breaking that cycle of dysfunction um is just miraculous and and it's yeah. truly God's grace truly
1: If I remember correctly I mean we only spoke briefly once before but you you're you there's a mixed race dynamic with you and your husband is that correct
0: Yes yeah, so my husband is actually Panamanian American both of his parents are from Panama his dad is Panamanian and Jamaican. His mom is Panamanian. So um, my husband and it was very interesting because when I met my husband, he had never dated outside of his race before. Whereas for me, I'd never dated anyone of my race because I, <laughs> right. right, because I didn't know anybody. Like right, up where I grew up, there were no white people. They just weren't. And so it, it demographically speaking, it made sense that I would date who's available, you know, in yes. my environment, but he had never dated outside of his race. And I, I remember saying to him, like, um, are you sure you want to do this? Like, <laughs> are you sure? And he kept saying to me, he said, Jessica, when I'm with you, he goes, if, if this was back in like 2000 or 19, yeah, about 2000, well, no, 2001 or so. And he, he said to me, he's like, he goes, can I be real with you? I feel like I'm with a black woman when I'm with you. <laughs> and the, and he said that to me because culturally speaking, everything that he had grown up around, I had grown up around as well. That's right. So like our first couple of dates, we were going to get oxtails and Jamaican yep. colas. And like, it wasn't anything new to me. It was, it was normal. And just growing up, like he grew up in some of the rough areas of Brooklyn. I had grown up in the rough areas of, you know, Queens. And so the culture that we grew up in negated the color of our skin, the cultural experiences really, really brought us together because like, you know, um, and so, hopefully, no one gets offended by that comment because, you know, I know with race, there you
1: know, was nothing offensive in anything that you right, just said. Because
0: people are just like, "What do you mean?" You know, you, he felt like you were a black woman. Well, because you know, black women tend to have these type of cultural experiences. It's not something that white women tend to have, but it was something right. that not only was I exposed to, but I was raised in. It was something that yes, that was
1: like your legitimate life. It wasn't you trying exactly. to figure out.
0: Right. right. It was
1: your life. That was, was your every day.
0: It was my every day. And to me, it was normal. Yeah. And it wasn't yes. abnormal until I went out into society and I interacted with other white people that I realized, uh, oh, <laughs> this ain't so normal. <laughs> you don't need oxtail. What? You, know you don't know who <laughs> Hammond is and you don't know this and like... Oh my goodness! You've never heard of Jelly That's Girl hilarious. Activator because I used to go to the black hair store to get Jerry Curl right. Activator for my stepfather when I was younger. So <laughs> I was exposed to black hair products for years, you know, and so it wasn't anything abnormal to me. It's like this right. is this is life. This is what it is. Yes. So oh my
1: gosh, so, <laughs> there's so much now that I understand about how you landed where you landed in terms of the work that you do and the focus that you have within it. So let's let's shift gears a little bit and share with everyone, just kind of give a, a summary of the type of work that you're doing. And then I want to explore some of these things that you've experienced um, and I've experienced where the Lord's giving you a kingdom perspective in the midst of all these kind of cultural dynamics and even political dynamics and all these things that have shown up. Uh, just kind of at the integration of race and culture and politics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So share, share a little bit about what you're doing, uh, business
0: wise now. Yeah. So I run an organization called look up and beyond and look up and beyond is an award-winning personal development company that really focuses on, uh, equipping and inspiring people to overcome the pain of their past to live purpose, purpose driven and fulfilling lives. And it, I do this through, um, speaking keynotes, training and facilitation. I do this through coaching programs, and it's something that has really, really, um, evolved into a lot of leadership development. Right. So that's how I ended up now when, when I initially started, I really was just an author and what you would call a quote unquote motivational speaker. Now right. I don't identify in any way as a motivational speaker like I see myself as someone who really provides transformational services that really yeah. gets to matters of the heart that takes a trauma informed approach when necessary that really helps us to reframe the negative circumstances of our lives to propel us to a purpose and and yeah. God has a purpose for each of us and so I'm I'm very blessed and fortunate to work with very, very diverse audiences and groups of people. Um, as I travel across the country, I mean, I've, I've worked in the youth sector. That's where I actually started. And I'm still mentoring young people today. And I've worked with professionals, C-suite level executives and anywhere in between. And it's just an honor. And, and I, I genuinely just love people and I love seeing people thrive beyond what they thought they could. Yes, it, it really just excites me. And to know that, you know, I have a story that I can thread into my work because it's one thing to read something from a book. It's another thing to live it.
1: Yes, yes, that's it. If if I recall, you have a focus. There's been a lot from a service perspective in the educational sector And I think we had a conversation, you were talked about kind of like workforce. So from a leadership, like workforce development and leadership, has that been mostly in the context of, of education, school system, or those types of things?
0: Yeah. So I would say in recent years, most of my audience and and the the work that I've done has been in workforce development, Mm -hmm. um, workforce development and in the education market.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the year, I mean, I could go back before 2020 and say like 2016. Cause there there's a lot of kind of dynamics going on in the United States, um, kind of the rise of Black Lives Matter movement. And there were some things that were just like in the news and kind of, there was kind of like, there's some energy around that. I would say 2016, et cetera. Then in 2020, in the midst of COVID pandemic, uh, we had that going on. We had election season. We had, uh, George Floyd, the whole watching the video of George Floyd and a knee on his neck, and then he dies, and then a a, you know, an uproar of all kinds of dynamics going on all summer of 2020 and all those things, which then led to a lot of organizations and companies starting to like think about, okay, we got a lot of folks that want us to do things. Some folks would just, I'm gonna pick on Black Lives Matter for a second. There would be oh, we'll put up a black square. You know, some are just like, we'll go, we're gonna do some things that try to show our support. Well, we put a black square, we'll do these things. Others were like, man, we got to figure some stuff out because there's some dynamics going on in our company that we need to kind of pay attention to, or those types of things. And others were like, I don't know what to do. Like to think about executives that are like, I don't know what to do in this wild space of time that we're in right now. And I'm curious to know in your work because i think it's interesting your kingdom perspective your kingdom lens in the midst of these kinds of conversations in the context of your work you've looked at this like we'll be trauma-informed where we need to we're going to be love-centered love-based and we're not going to overly focus on on these particular matters but yet we could still bring healing to these matters and these divisions like talk about what that's looked like for you Uh, and working with clients or, you know, from the leadership perspective and education, what have you been experiencing? I would say specifically 2020 and beyond in this space.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to be um, sensitive and to be mindful that we live in a very sensitive time. And we live in a time where many people have experienced great trauma. The pandemic alone was very traumatic for people Um, For some people, they still feel it was a farce. They don't think that it ever happened. Um, God bless those people, you know, that God covered them and they didn't have to experience some of those things. I live in a community where I saw firsthand the impacts of the pandemic.
1: Um,
0: My church at the time lost over 40 members in a year. Wow. 40 members due to the pandemic. You add to that the component of, racial tension, the messaging that's going out, the political, um, messaging and the, just the, the political culture, it can take anyone out emotionally, yes. emotionally, it can just take anyone out. So I think when you are leading at the forefront, cause everything rises and falls on leadership. And as leaders, I believe that we are called to live higher. That means that yes, we feel our emotions. But we do that and then we come back to the drawing board with logic and we look and we see what drives my decisions, what drives the vision and the mission that I'm, you know, working towards. And it has to be values. It has to be values. I am a values driven person. That is why I keep my leadership statement in front of me, because it reminds me that these are the values from which I operate. These are the values from which I make decisions. And if I stray away from that, then not only am I living inauthentically, but I'm really at risk for making some major um, decisions that can cost yeah. me later on because I've moved away from the values. And so in this culture coming you know, through 2020 and, and to the present, we have to um, recognize that everyone has a story. I believe in the power of stories. And the reason I believe in the power of stories is because I have a story and my story breaks stereotypes. It breaks boxes. It breaks, um, you know, ideas, ideas that people may hold. And I just believe that stories hold value and we have to give people space and, 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 um, permission to say your story matters. Now, stories, matter but they also should not override what's right and what's wrong
1: going back to being values driven
0: going back to being values driven exactly and so I tend to take that approach and I bring that into my work and I think it helps a lot of leaders who we can really get caught up in the emotional lism of what's happening in the culture. And I've been guilty of it. I'll tell you right now, growing up in a black family, growing up in a black community, growing up in spaces where back in the nineties, I was in black lives matters, like marches, not even realizing that that's what it was. I had a, um, a father figure who was very well known in the community he was very pro-black. Him and his wife, and they organized a lot of community events. And he kind of took—they took me under their wing. And so everything they did, I was part of it as a kid. Right. And so I remember the cries for freedom, the cries for justice. I saw what injustices happen in low-income communities. I made it through the crack epidemic here in New York City, which hit low-income, predominantly African American and Hispanic communities. I yeah. lived in these communities. So i have seen some of the injustice some of the systemic things that have that have happened so looking at that and remembering that i also realized that today with the knowledge that there are injustices that happen there are unfair things there are places that need to be revitalized and, and reimagined um how do we do that without creating other forms of oppression? How do we do that without creating more divisiveness? How do we do that in the midst of people who are dealing with racial trauma? And, you know, like, I'll give you a good example. When I was um, coming, when we were coming out of the George Floyd situation, there was a lot of talk about racial trauma. Now for me, I'm a white woman. I live to this day. I still live in a predominantly black community. I've raised my children here. The church that I attended for over 15 years was predominantly black. It probably was pretty much all black. Um, and so I'm in these spaces, my mentees, the people that I do life with, the people who I'm close with, not cause I sought them out, but because this is the environment yeah. that I'm in. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so I'm realizing now with images like George Floyd images, like, um, Tamir Rice, images mm-hmm. of these these different stories that just kept showing up in the media, you know, that created a message that black and brown skin had no value, that there was a dehumanization attached to them. Someone like me, who's living in these spaces, I was a trigger for people's racial trauma. Yeah, yeah. Even if even if I didn't mean to be the same way that as a woman when i experience a sexual assault if i because i'm a sexual assault and rape survivor so knowing that i know that going into certain environments where it's male dominated or if i have to pass through a heavily male populated environment there's a high chance i'm going to be triggered because of my past traumatic events and so taking all of these different things into consideration I know that I had to do the work on me to say that, even though this may be true, I need to still show up being values driven. I need to still show up letting love drive, you know, my behavior, my interactions, and also not letting that kind of silence me, because there was a time where I felt like, okay, you know, I don't really know if this is the time that I should be speaking. And then now we're in a culture where, the, the the resounding message that I hear is white women are the problem. Oh, these white women's tears, you know, like we can't listen to them. Right. I'm hearing a dehumanization coming from that angle. And I'm like, well, that's not very different than what I heard when they said that these five young black men in central park supposedly raped this white woman and now they're calling them thugs and animals and all of this. Right. They would dehuman, dehumanizing right. these young men. And that yeah. became the dehumanizing language for a particular group of people. And guess what? On both ends, it is not of God. It is not yeah. Christ-like. It does not represent the kingdom, but because of the anger, because of the pain, because of this, and then some people have their own personal stories of injustice. Sure. And so these things get resurfaced to the top. And now in this cry for justice in this cry for freedom, I'm going along with what seems to make sense at the moment. And it may not align with the word of God. And so there's a conflict happening. we are, we are in a crisis where values are tested. And the truth is most people, we don't even know our values because we don't really take the time to think about them. And when we don't know our values, we again, we get caught up in the emotionalism of even very relevant and very real problems. So
1: you recognizing the value of story and recognizing people have traumas of many sorts, recognizing that we also need to be valued driven so that we are not led by our emotions and all of these things and looking at these things from these perspectives, how do you then equip those who are in the midst of, I don't know how to do this. And I don't know, like how do I do this in the midst of all this stuff? I've got division here, division there. I've got rules coming in from the government about this. And I've got all this stuff going on, especially in education, all of those things. How do you help them What's the message? Like, we know we're coming from a kingdom lens, a kingdom perspective. How do you flow and how do you help them to walk through that process? What are some of those keys and what are you experiencing from engaging in that way, whether it's training or consulting in these spaces?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. I know that some of the the most highly recognized work that I've seen really come out of the pandemic and and just this whole social climate has been going back to the vision and the mission statement. So when we go back as a group collaboratively and we get curious about how is this vision and this mission. um, Something that we are working towards, what are our strengths, when we begin to look see, I'm, I'm a visionary. So like even with my, my organization, Look Up and Beyond, it's about looking up and beyond where we are currently. And it's yeah. about being forward minded. It's about being vision driven and having a purpose beyond this moment here. And so I bring that into the work because I find that when we are forward focused, when we can think beyond ourselves, when we can have a vision and a mission that impacts, the greater good of of a group of people or or society, we tend to become less selfish. We we tend to become less selfish. Now, I don't know if, 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 if folks would agree with me, but I see that we are navigating an epidemic of selfishness. At the end of the day, everything is about me, how I feel, what I think. And yes, we all again have experiences we have stories that are valid they they contribute to the lens from which we see the world but they're not the gospel (laughs) so just because you've experienced just because i've experienced great trauma from a particular group of people it doesn't make it gospel that i can lump people into that i mean imagine and and i'll I'll share this as as my personal story i was abused by black southerners who were Um, influences in the church who were people that were respected. And then by the time I got saved and and went into my first church home where God planted me, it was a black church where women who looked like my step-grandmother actually attended. Now imagine I had let that bitterness really, really take over me. I would have missed the plans that God had for me yes i would have missed and some of those church mothers that triggered me initially that reminded me of my step-grandmother became some of the most impactful women in my life the mothers that prayed over me my children the ones that poured wisdom into me i mean yes. i would have missed out on incredibly rich opportunities because i didn't heal from that particular trauma in my yeah. past. So I guess this is,
1: well, this is what I'm curious about because these traumas are personal, but then from a corporate or, you know, organizational perspective, how do they like, cause they, they could be like, well, listen, we're going to be focused on this vision and you need a therapist. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean how do we navigate the spaces of real, like real personal traumas that are impacting their environment and yet still maintain visionary Focus. Is it because they're focused on the vision of the future that that all of a sudden people are focused on that, and so therefore these traumas aren't like showing up daily? I would think not. I would think that they're that, especially in this day and time, in an increasing measure with mental health epidemics and all these things, that they're having to find new ways or new structures or new supportive systems or whatever Mm -hmm. to even be able to successfully stay. Uh, you know, focus on the big picture and forward in the midst of all those things too.
0: One of the things that I always, always, always stress is that our personal lives impact our professional lives. Right. We cannot separate the two. The things that create triggers for us in our personal lives will create triggers for us in our personal lives. Yes. And so one of the ways that I, I, I really believe that we can begin to create a culture where we can even get curious about these things and really have these conversations that may be very difficult to have, is by personal development, creating a culture of personal growth and development. Most companies and, and, and organizations don't really have a culture of personal growth where that's encouraged. You may have a staff training once a year, you may have a right. professional development day every couple of months. But to create a culture of personal growth is to create a culture where it is encouraged to read 10 pages of a good book today. It is encouraged to listen to a podcast that's going to challenge you to really look at your core values. It is about bringing in someone who can help um, navigate some of these complex conversations So that you can use them as stepping stones to move towards that vision. See, conflict is nothing more than a gift. Conflict is nothing more than an opportunity to learn and to grow about each other. And a lot of times people attack the person versus attacking the actual issue. In order to have these very complex conversations, we all need to be on our own journey of personal growth. Because what happens is we become clear on what our values are. And if I'm a value-driven person, then guess what? Then I'm going to see you as a value-driven person. And that really highlights our strengths. And I believe, I'm of the belief that as humans, as part of the human experience, although we may have different cultural experience, we may have different stories, at the root of the human experience, we share the same things. And those things should take precedence over some of the other things that can only happen when we value each other.
1: So you had said something earlier, you said conflict is, is a gift. Do you think that organizations, companies, whatever the context is, educational systems, corporations, or whatever, that they should create spaces to navigate those conflicts and stories? Is that part, is that helpful? from that perspective on the way to focusing on you know unity around a bigger picture
0: i think it's touchy it depends on the organization right and the culture of the organization i mean if you're if you're working at a mechanic shop it may right. not hold much relevance, depending <laughs> on you know. But if you are in a, if you are in the education market, or you are in workforce development, and you're really actively engaging with people, and you you have to navigate different personalities, and 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 I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to create spaces. Now, again, if you are someone who's never really had to think about topics like this. It's it's going to be terrifying and almost impossible. And the truth is a lot of people, and then I'll say it very real, a lot of white people never really thought about race until the George Floyd situation. Because white people generally don't talk about race, from my observation, as much as People of color or black people talk about race because they have different experiences. Now that is a very generalized statement and it's not true for everyone, but again, as a white woman from the outside looking in who saw the culture of white people on my social media, the culture of people, my black friends and and different, you know, colleagues, the conversations were very different, Yeah. very different. And yeah. it was very eye opening, where you can see that a lot of white people never really thought about issues of race to to that degree.
1: And so that's why it was interesting to me, kind of paying attention to the landscape in 2020 when the when companies were trying to figure out what do we do, what do we do, what do we do here, what do we do internally, and some of, and some of them came to conclusions of. Creating these like workshops or these programs that were creating an environment that had these conversations up. And there were people who, like you said, were like, I've never had to have these conversations. And now I'm at work and I'm having to have these conversations. And I'm kind of feeling some kind of way about why I got to come to work and have these conversations. And depending on, you know, the. Uh, you had talked about, you had talked about white women's tears earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I remember like that Robin D'Angelo's book, uh, White Fragility was becoming, which I did read because there were so many people talking about it. So I was like, let me read this book. And I read it and I was like, okay, there's some truth and there's some good stuff in this book, but there's a whole lot of stuff that this is not a kingdom approach to because like it's rooted in shame, it's rooted in condemnation. It's like, it's not, it's, like, it's not coming from this like healthy place. This Is my right. opinion, in the matter. But then there was some corporate programs like built upon this. Mm-hmm. So I could see why it would create like something that has a good intent of creating a gift of conflict that leads to something that's helpful. If it's rooted, in something that creates an atmosphere of shame, condemnation, or what have you for something that's perhaps even beyond you know, that either you're not aware of or has nothing to do with you, but has something to do with maybe right. generations before you that it doesn't help us. So I've so it's something that I really do, even though I don't navigate corporate spaces a lot uh, these days, it's something that I really do think about because a lot of people are navigating these spaces and in the educational system, and all of these things. And it's like, there's got to be kingdom solution ways of creating atmospheres that allow that level of unity with vision to come forward. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure, I don't know who's doing it. Well, and I don't know, I'm on a, like a little bit of an exploration and like, what, what are the keys to doing it? Well, and who's doing it well?
0: Well, I think you won't hear who's doing it well, because it's not going to really highlight what's happening in the culture right oh, now. Snap.
1: Wait, wait. You just laid a whole word out.
0: <laughs> snap. You just if you, said something. If you think about it though, right, we are in a you culture right now where if you're not pushing CRT, if you're not pushing white fragility, if you're not pushing these ideologies who again, I, I believe, and this is my personal opinion, I believe that they start with very well-intentioned yes. work, very yeah. passionate, very um, meaningful work to say there's a problem, we got to fix it. The challenge is that you, you have truths muddled with untruth and for people who don't know the difference between the two, you get caught up in that, but you kind of sense like, this isn't really right. This doesn't really feel good. Um, It's really not creating a bridge. I feel like it's making the gap wider. Um, It's very, very evident because you have these new ideologies coming out into culture and we've seen it get worse and not better and so are these ideologies working no because they're 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 rooted in falsehoods yes there are some truths threaded into them yes and that's what makes them very appealing and again if you are a person who loves justice and you believe in being a voice for the voiceless and standing up for those you know who are mistreated that passion is going to be directed in that way the challenge is that we really have to take a step back and we have to say, like you said, does this align with kingdom truths? Now I was very, I'll be very honest. I was a very white liberal, very white liberal, because I really felt like I've seen the injustices, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I understand what black people are talking about when they talk about these issues. And I realized that even in my desire to support these causes that I was being problematic because some things did not align with the word of God. And before I am a white woman, I am a Christian. I am a follower Mm -hmm. of Jesus. And if it's something that does not align with Jesus's laws, then I am out of line. And so when I began to take a step back and, and not allow my emotions to stir me to put the black dots on the social media image and to, you know, walk around with my black lives matters t-shirt. Anybody would know that the sentiment of that is truth. Anybody would know that. But what I realize is that you can't separate the sentiment at this point from the organization and the organization does not align with my values as a follower of Jesus. And I had to really accept that and say, you know what? I need to separate myself from this here. And I go back to values because at the end of the day, despite our cultural differences, the different stories that we carry, that we live, when we are in a values driven environment, we know that we value each other. I value your story. It may not make sense to me, but I value the courage that you have to share it. I value yes. the experience you bring. We may not see eye to eye, but life is colorful and life is complex and we're going to have different things. And so we need to create space for that. And I don't think jumping onto the bandwagon of these new cultural phenomenons of of DEI is the answer. I just don't. I think they're yeah. more problematic than they are um, helping us.
1: I Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's my... My hope, because you said so, I'm still stuck on what you said when you're like, well, the ones that aren't doing well, the ones who are doing well, when you have good examples, that's not what's highlighted. It won't be. Because because if the enemy's coming to create, you know, wants to create division, confusion, et cetera, there's always opposition. There's always others who are, there there is, um, there's a lot at stake to maintain a perspective of division, right? Okay. And so it's almost like that's why I'm like I'm just believing for like an an underground network of kingdom focused people on these topics that there where there's a there's a platform for conversation of, of practices of things that are working because quite honestly people will flourish it doesn't matter whether they believe in Jesus or not. like his ways like people will still flourish and so if there's those coming around so that people who have a heart for this thing don't feel like their only option is to hop on board of things that are a mixed bag but there's almost a whole other dynamic created of a kingdom lens solution around these things that then if maybe the media doesn't want to create high less of it, at least there will be pockets and community and collaboration that's sharing these things so that it gets further propagated in other spheres of influence. That's Mm -hmm. my prayer. That's my prayer.
0: I love that. I love that.
1: Yeah. I appreciate you sharing. I think think the fact that these are conversations that you're in, in the midst of, uh, that you're paying attention to and also actively engaging in is really great. And I love that you have the you have the gift of experiences they weren't great experiences mm-hmm. many of them but you have the gift of the healing on the other side of traumas that kind of form and have empathy for how you're moving forward and how you communicate in the places and spaces that you're in and and that's a gift and that's a gift for you know from the, from your story That Romans 8 and 28, baby. Mm -hmm. That Romans 8 and 28.
0: (laughs) So yeah, so during the pandemic, um, when this whole George Floyd thing was unfolding, this was around the time that I was really working in the youth market. So I was going to a lot of colleges, was doing high school stuff, working with youth and professionals who work with youth. And I remember as things became more intense culturally, that i was being turned away quite often from college campuses and with this whole movement of dei um diversity equity inclusion what i was told was you know at this time we're looking for speakers of color we're looking for black speakers who we think would relate more to our students And I initially, I didn't really think anything of it. I'm like, okay, you know, I I do understand the importance of representation. Like even to this day, I believe that it is important. Um, Then it continued. And then I began to see the trend and I'm like, okay, now this is becoming problematic because I really believe very strongly that the bias against my skin color was really creating a loss for their students because I know right. that I know how to work with students of color. I don't yeah. need to be a black person to bring principles and strategies and values. And because of my cultural experiences, I also knew that I can connect with certain demographics right. within the student market. And right. you know, it, it really began to make it very clear to me that when we start jumping on this bandwagon of these blanket statements and these ideologies, that we're actually doing more harm than good now i do believe that um these were very well meaning well-meaning people you know who said okay i want the best for my students but when you really take off the layers and you really begin to unpack that and i don't care if, if it's towards me or anybody of any way right when you look at the when you take the layers off and you remove it what's happening is we're making a decision decision based on race and not the value that the person can bring based on their experiences, their expertise, their cultural upbringing. And so I, I really began to pray about this and say, you know, um, how do I, number one, I knew that I needed to really trust God to open up doors and opportunities for me, number one, so that I wouldn't get bitter and resentful. Cause I have friends who are doing extremely well in that market. And I know that many of the opportunities they got was because of the timing. Like it was like, okay, you're, you know, a black male, we're looking for black male speakers. You're a black right. female, we're looking for and I personally don't have a problem with that. I, I I just I don't in general. Where I think it becomes problematic if that's the only way that we're operating, if, if that's right. the only way that we're approaching this um, looking for speakers and looking to hire people. And I just think it's wrong on 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 either end. And so it yeah. began to make- miss- It's not a
1: holistic solution. It's
0: not a holistic solution. And that's yeah. really where the values came in for me, being a value-driven yeah. person, because I believe as a leader that we need to be driven by our values and values are always rooted in love. It's about loving people. That means i have to love people who i don't agree with i have to love people who have different life experiences than me who have different ideologies than me but i need to value them as a person and i need to love them despite those things and that's not easy for most people to do
1: yes it's not and
0: especially if people don't really love themselves
1: yeah that's real talk you know you shared before we hopped on, like before we hit record, you had shared, and you actually alluded to this in our conversation, you had said, I keep my values right in front of me all the time so I can remind myself, even in the midst of maybe a little bit of a frustration around the season and being rejected on these aspects, or or even before all of this went down and just like walking this out and wanting to steward, you know, the work that you're called to, I would love it if you would actually share that, like share what you're looking at every day
0: Oh yeah. to remind
1: yourself of, of this work.
0: This is my, my leadership statement that I've, I created, I actually use this as a model in my coaching programs as well. When I'm working with high achievers and purpose-driven leaders and mind states, I am driven by faith and purpose in all I do striving daily to live authentically with integrity and wholeness i use empathy compassion and love to create environments where people can show up as they are grow heal and thrive no matter the adversity they face
1: that's good that's a good thing to have in front of you every day
0: it is it really keeps me anchored It really keeps me anchored and it reminds me like i said like i mean a lot of this stuff really comes natural to you when when you're in it when this is like this is my belief this is who i am but it's good to just visually see it sometimes yes have that reminder you're having a hard day like you said even in business we face rejection for whatever reason it doesn't even have to be anything related to race or gender or anything just we know just no 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 and you're just reminded that at the end of the day i'm just here to serve that's it i'm just here to serve at the end of the day it really goes back to and this is i really really thank you for even having the courage to have this conversation and for the invitation for me not just to share my story but to really just have this dialogue around this very sensitive topic It's not something that we can unpack within an hour, 90 minutes. That's right. There's just so many elements to it. But I really believe that if anyone takes anything away from this, I really, really, really encourage each and every person to visit their values. What are your core values? What are your core values? Because our core values determine our behavior. And leadership is about valuing people. And when we value people, we love them. Values are the glue that hold people together. That's why when I talk about vision and mission and going to, you know, um, something that is beyond where we are today in the work that I do, that has to be driven by values, that enduring belief upon which I act upon, which we act upon. And, you know, those things are sustainable in the long-term, they are able to override the complexities and, and the crises in, of life. Those values yeah. are enduring.
1: That's right, that's right. The truth with a capital T. <laughs> love that. I love it. Well, I appreciate you so much sharing your story, coming here. And like you said, it's not something that can be unpacked in an hour, but I still feel like that even in this hour, there's there's many moments and many things that people can take and ponder on You know in their own thought i mean that's what this is all about is really just sparking thought sparking conversation having people sit with god around stuff in their own context how we really navigate all this stuff with a kingdom lens you know and so i love it thank you for sharing how do people get connected with you if they want to learn more about your business and the work you're doing where do they go
0: well one of the best places to go is lookupandbeyond.com you can also shoot me an email at Jessica at lookup and Beyond. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm revitalizing and renew redoing my social media because that was hacked recently, which just served oh, up confirmation that I'm on the right track. Because listen, when y'all hear loving people, not everybody's loving that you're loving people. <laughs> <laughs> this is the truth. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica. I appreciate Thank you, you, Shay. This has been awesome.